Golay presents Recorded History with the RecordHub.com. 100% Irish and direct to your door. Hello again, recorded historians, and welcome to Recorded History with the RecordHub.com. I'm your host, Ed Smith, and this is the podcast where you get to hear about the lives and histories of some very interesting folk all through the choosing of three albums. Well, it's the pod's 21st birthday, and we get to mark the occasion by spending time with a true legend of the music game, Mr. Don Was. Is, as I say, in my greeting to the man, a genuine music zealot. Apart from the success of his own band, Was Not Was, he went on to work with the likes of... Here we go. Bonnie Raitt, the B-52s, Iggy Pop, Bob Dylan, Elton John, Ringo Starr, Roy Orbison, Willie Nelson, Carly Simon, and a scrappy little beat outfit by the name of the Rolling Stones to name just a fraction. A true, true jazz fan as well since childhood. His incredible life came full circle when he was appointed as head of the legendary Blue Note Records back in 2011. The very label that sparked his relationship with music as a boy. He's an incredible man with an incredible story. So let's get into it. The recorded history of the absolutely remarkable Don Was. Welcome to Recorded History, the legend, one of the true music zealots, uh, it's fair to say, Mr. Don Was. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your recorded history. Thank you, man. It's an honor to be here. I, I, you know, I majored in zealotism at university. Yeah, you must be a professor at this. They must have a wing of Stanford or some time machine named after you because uh, I would just let you know, I didn't do the, the intro to you on this recording because we only have a certain amount of time. And it would have taken up 80% of the allotted time just even going through some of the artists and some of the experiences you've had over your career. So I'll record that separately over a three-day okay. period. And we're going to get about nine episodes of this podcast out of your discography alone. <laughs> Full disclosure from the get-go, uh, Don, you were talking to a jazz... What's the best way I can be kind to myself here? Um, idiot, uh, I suppose, is the best way. You know, I have a friend in Barcelona, Roger Roca Pereira, who's a mm -hmm. jazz journalist. And I call, mm -hmm. him, I call him Mr. Miyagi because for so long he has been trying to get to educate me and bring me up to speed with jazz. And I've, I've gotten to base camp uh, in, mm -hmm. in, the, in the Everest that is jazz for me. So if you, if I suddenly elucidate a very well-informed and incisive question, that is, for the most part, coming from Roger in Barcelona. So <laughs> I, I want to give him a shout out because he'll be listening to this and he'll be, he'll be cursing me in Spanish or Catalan, I should say. So I want to give him a shout out. Um, I just want to ask you, for how difficult was it considering, I suppose, the, the wealth of experience and history you have in music? Was it a difficult task when it was put to you to whittle it down to just three records uh, to kind of, I suppose, marker oh. your recorded history? It must have been very, very tough. It's it's very hard to do that. I, I, I could have I could have given you a list of a hundred of them, and they would have all been valid. But these these three have had a real uh, profound effect on on my life and and how how I work, particularly uh, my, my work at uh, Blue Note Records. So uh, they're all fairly yeah. uh, pivotal points. I think. And I want to thank you because. Again, full disclosure, I hadn't heard any of them before I was sent the oh. list during the week. So it was a great introduction to me to some 
quite astonishing records, I have to say. Mm. So uh, shout out again to Roger. He'll be delighted to hear me say this. But let's get into your very first choice uh, in your recorded history, Mr. Don Was. It's 1966. And what is the album? The album is called Mode for Joe by Joe Henderson. It's on Blue Note Records. It it is my very first exposure to any jazz. uh, And the... It came about quite by accident. I was 14, 1966, driving around with my mom. She was making me run errands with her on Saturday, and I wanted to be out at the mall with my friends. And so I was arms folded in the back of the car. Yeah. Lower (laughs) lip out. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, I was a total jerk, man. So she stopped taking me in. She left me in the car with the keys and she said, just play with the radio or something. So I started just moving up and down the dial. And I didn't realize that there was a jazz station in Detroit. And I landed on it at a point that I've now identified as being one minute and 26 seconds into the song Mode for Joe by Joe Henderson. Wow. And it's the saxophone solo. It's the beginning of it. And you can hear Joe playing. It sounds more like anguished cries. He's going, like that, right? And I thought, whoa, I, first of all, I've never heard anything like that in my life before. And number two, it completely fit the way I was feeling and the frustration I was going through getting dragged As around. As a tortured teenager, yeah. Yeah, so I started, uh, it got my attention for sure. And I'm listening to this, like, what, what on earth is this? And that 10, 12 seconds in, the drummer, Joe Chambers, who's actually a, still a recording artist from Blue Note Records wow. in his 80s. Yeah. Joe Chambers starts kicking in and he starts swinging and slowly Joe Henderson's tenor falls in line and, and he starts grooving. And the message that came through to me, it had nothing to do with music or notes or saxophone technique or reeds or anything like that. It was Joe Henderson speaking to me and he said, Don, you got to groove in the face of adversity. Oh my God, I love it. And, and did and that turn your mind it, around? Did that change your outlook on life completely then from that it, moment? It changed my mood 180 degrees in within the course of about a minute and a half. That was it. And, and I was aware of it. I thought, wow. This, this this is some powerful music, man. I, I like the way this makes me feel. And when my mom got back in the car, I was a nice kid again, you know? And <laughs> Who's this I, lad in the back of the car? It, it, it wasn't lost on me, the, the yeah. power that music had to, like, I, well, to turn, turn around I had a very that, similar, that Now that you mention it, it's, I've, you know, I suppose this is the power and, and the, the glorious un, universality of music. Through the ages, uh, I had a very similar experience with my father in the car, and he jumped out to the shop. This would have been 1991 in a small town mm-hmm. that, that I grew up in, Mill Street, North Cork, in the very south of the country. Yeah. And again, I was just out of school, and you know, I was like, oh, you know, what's he doing now? Because he'd go in and he'd talk to everybody in the shop, and it would take ages. <laughs> you know, it would be like one milk and you know a loaf of bread, and it'd be 45 minutes later, and he'd get all the gossip. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I was sitting there going, oh, I'm never going to get home. And a very well-known and late DJ in this country called Larry Gogan. Uh, it's I always compare it to that sh- famous shot, the track and zoom shot in Jaws, where Schneider's on the beach and they first see the, the shark and it tracks and mm-hmm. it zooms out at the same time. I felt like that mm-hmm. camera was on me because Nirvana's Nevermind, or Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit came on. Mm-hmm. And in the exact same mode, and I suppose experience that you had, my jaw dropped mm-hmm. a bit and it stayed dislocated, I think, to this day, it absolutely changed <laughs> the very nucleus of my molecules and spun me right around the washing machine of life. And I was never the same anyway, you know, musically. Yeah. So I can, you know, I really can relate 
to that yeah, moment. Good. So yeah. th- this is a very yeah. personal record for you, obviously. Mm. Um, so going back to, you know, this is your 14, 1966, Detroit, born 1952. You're right, really, in the eye of the storm of what made Detroit one of the greatest music cities of all time. You know, and you've Absolutely. spoken you've spoken so incisively and elegantly about this before that about how the motor industry and how everyone was tied into that industry really brought and opened up the city to so many different influences musically. Can you explain that? There, there, there were so many jobs that opened up after World War II. Mm-hmm. The auto industry was located in Detroit and the factories were there too. It's different now, just the, just the offices are there yeah. now. But, uh, so people came not just from all over the, the United States, but from all over the world to, to work on these jobs. And they brought their cultures with them. So you heard every kind of music, and it was just a jambalaya of culture and musical styles. Another aspect of of, uh, the auto industry and its impact on uh, the the music of Detroit was that, uh, you know, it was a one industry town. Not everybody worked in the factories. My, My parents were both teachers. But if auto sales were down, they'd lay off workers who would then move away with their families. So the knock on effect. The way to find work somewhere else. Yes. uh, You know, they'd lay off teachers, they'd lay off barbers, they'd lay off waitresses. So everybody was kind of in the the same boat. And there was no point in putting on any airs. I don't I don't know anybody who leased a Mercedes to impress their friends because there was no need to. No one was going to be impressed. Everyone knew that we were all in the same boat. As a result, the music of that comes from Detroit kind of reflects that honesty. It's it's embodied in say the, the music of John Lee Hooker, yeah. which is as raw as you can get, but still incredibly soulful. And did that it's inform your so did that inform your own ability then to be able to move so freely between genres, you know, considering your incredible discography from the likes of, you know, Bonnie Ray to, <laughs> to Roy yeah. Orbison to the Stones. And your own music, of course, it was and it was. But yeah. did that kind of background and that kind of, you know, environment, that hothouse that you grew up in in Detroit, just keep your mind wide open to any kind of music? And that well, helped you as a producer. Yeah. No, it's a good question. But what you learn is if you're exposed to so many different kinds of music, you become genre blind, yeah. maybe. Like genres don't matter. What matters is soul and, and coming from the heart and saying something real, something that... When the artist, you know, writes a song, sings the song, they're feeling something and the listener can pick up on that and it makes them feel something. That's good music. And what kind of music was, was lying around your house then? And your, your parents were teachers. You know, you started playing was a piano guitar at the age of six. It's incredible. But yeah. what kind of yeah. do you, what kind of records do you recall lying about the house when you were? When oh, you were nothing, nothing too adventurous. They were listening to Harry Belafonte oh, yeah. and uh, all the good stuff. Yeah, Sinatra, you know, uh, it's typical 50. My mom was young enough to watch a show called American Bandstand in the 1950s, which is which is a show for teenagers, like yeah. a dance show, but all the big rock and roll artists were on. So that, that was on every afternoon. So while I was growing up, I got exposed to all of that. And then your high school is kind of, it's a famous, it's kind of gone down in, in the, the hall of, <laughs> the, the school hall of fame. As just being one of those, it almost sounds uh, beyond fiction. The the bands that played in your local oh, yeah. in your local high school, just to name a few: Pete Seeger, Bob. Sorry, Bob. Bob, Bob Seeger. Bob Seeger. Bob Seeger yes, Parliament yeah, the, uh, Funkadelic. Yeah, 
Pete Seeger would have been cool, but Bob Seeger was like a local artist, right? The Stooges played at my high school. Parliament, Parliament Funkadelic. And at the junior high school, the Parliaments, which was like the earliest incarnation of of Parliament Funkadelic with George Clinton, they they played a sock hop at my junior high school with a a local DJ and they lip synced I Just Want to Testify, which was a new record at the time. That's so, you know, we were exposed to all kinds of stuff. And, and you know, one of the things I discovered uh, when I got the gig at Blue Note was I really started looking at, at the catalog. And there's such an inordinate number mm. of great musicians who came from Detroit. Like, there's no other city that comes close to this, you know, from Donald Byrd and Yusuf Latif and Kenny Burrell and Ron Carter to Elvin and Hank and Thad Jones. I, I mean, I could recite for yeah. 10 minutes. It's, yeah, it's yeah. insane. And... Uh... Just to go back to, you know, Jazz spoke to you then at 14, then, you know, you heard you heard the record that we're talking about right, right now. And that right. was then your mind was open then. And is it true then you would travel across? So this is the story of her. This came from Roger. Yeah. You, may, you may confirm yeah. this, that you took a bus trip across town for 45 minutes with your buddies to a record store across Detroit to just not even buy the records. But just to hold in your hand, I think it was uh, an album, a Blue Note album, of course, how the circle was beginning then that you'd complete later on in life. Was it Larry Young's Unity that you just have it in your hand? We, I mean, we, we did it every Saturday. Wow. So it wasn't just <laughs> an isolated thing. Well, what happened was once I heard Mode for Joe, I knew about this radio station. Yeah. So I started listening all the time and they'd back announce. And I, I soon came to discover that... Uh, a lot of what I was digging was from this little label out of New York called Blue Note Records. And and when I got the albums, when I'd see the covers, they had this very distinct look. You know, album it, covers are works of art in themselves. All, yeah. They were all designed by one guy, a man named Reed Miles, did all the Blue Note covers in the 50s and 60s, basically. And he's his sense of design has totally infiltrated the graphic design vocabulary globally. You can see it reflected in advertisements and all, you know, it's movie iconic. credits, it's all iconic, kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, but we just wanted to, we, we would look at these covers and, and it was more than just digging the music. It was, we wanted to be part of that scene man the, the, they had these great black and white photos of all these musicians the walls looked black you couldn't tell where they were but they were smoking cigarettes and wearing cool clothes and holding saxophones and i just wanted to be part of that world so i became uh you know a dedicated follower at, at about age 14 or 15 mm. of, of the whole blue note ethos and speaking of iconic album covers and iconic albums we should mm. go to your second choice in your recorded history again 1966 a seminal year for music in in general really but specifically in the world of of a young uh, don was it mm. is what is your second choice my second choice is an album that i personally think is the crown jewel of mm. the blue note catalog it's called speak no evil by wayne shorter and it came out in 66 i I didn't get it right away. I got it when I was in high school, but it really had an impact on me when I, I went to the University of Michigan, which was a rough year. I was 19 years old. I moved to Ann Arbor, Michigan, because that's where like the Stooges and the MC5 were, and yeah, I yeah. wanted to, to be, be in one action. of those bands. Yeah. But I was in music school. That got me there. But back then, if, if you went 
to a university to study music, you played in the symphony orchestra or you weren't in the music school. They didn't have jazz programs or electronic music programs or recording engineer classes yeah. or studios or anything. So it was pretty cut and dry. And I didn't want to do that. So I wasn't real happy in school. And uh, the only gig I could find was like playing in a band that was like doing covers of Carpenter's songs. You know, it was... Uh, band called Sunshine. That should tell you everything you need to know about that band. We played at a, at a bowling alley in Ypsilanti, Michigan, but it was a far cry from the MC5. You know? and I was just having a rough time of it. I, I, I set out uh, leaving high school with all these dreams and I was lost. And when I get really lost, uh, I'd go back to my apartment lock my bedroom door and I would play side two of Wayne Shorter's Speak No Evil. Wow. And there was something about it. Again, it was not dissimilar to the Joe Henderson experience in, in that when I listened to Wayne playing sax, I, I didn't hear uh, a guy playing notes. I didn't hear technique. I heard a human being speaking to me. But I put the record on and you know, I, I'd sit between the two speakers and I, on one side you have Elvin Jones playing drums who had all this, he had this kind of Detroit energy. He was, he was the, I suppose the, uh, the jazz equivalent of the, of the MC five, you know, right. he played with maybe just a little too much power on this thing. It's great. Swings like crazy. But I thought, well, I could relate to it, man. I'm, I'm like Elvin. I'm 19. I got all this, all this wild energy. Yeah. And then I'd hear Herbie Hancock coming out of the other speaker. And he was even at, he was in his mid-20s at the time. But he, I think he knew more about harmony than anybody else in the country did. And the voicings that he's playing and, and his support, the way he's playing behind Wayne is so tasteful and so smart. And I thought, all right, I'm a smart guy. I can relate to Herbie. But it was really Wayne speaking to me. And what I used to imagine was that when I heard his saxophone solo, I imagined that we were walking down the main street in Ann Arbor and he was kind of teaching me where trouble was, you know, and like to duck and dive. It was almost like a, like a video game, except they hadn't invented video games at this point. Right. Yeah. So it was like, you sort of had to fight your way down the street and Wayne through his sax was offering me advice about how, how, how to, get by to and bob and I, weave I and, duck I, and dive. I felt it was a metaphorical for what i was going through yeah. in life but by the time i got to the end of the second side it's about 15 16 minutes i i remembered what my hopes and dreams were wow and it got me back in line i felt like myself again it realigned me it was that impactful and for you it's huge man it it, it changed everything it, it got me to drop out of school and start making records <laughs> <laughs> because I realized also that that was a a noble pursuit in life. If you could if you could make music that would do that for other people, bring them some comfort. Man, life is crazy. You know, like we we don't know if we're gonna die in the next ten seconds. If our loved ones are gonna keel over. If we're gonna get fired today. If we're you know gonna get divorced tomorrow. No, there's very little you can hang your hat on. Yeah, And it, it it's tough getting through life. You know, we face a lot of obstacles. We don't even know why we're here. <laughs> yeah, it's wild. It's, it's wild that you mention um, the video game element of this. I put this on yesterday uh, while I was doing my, I have to, I have, my doctor's orders. I, I have to do a big walk every day. And there's a gorgeous park near where I live called the Phoenix Park. So uh, nice. I put on uh, Speak No Evil. And then I, straight after I put on actually a mode for Joe. So I got a good what, two hours out of my walk. And as, as soon as I'd heard and put the music on, 
I'm not sure there's any kind of other music that is as, I suppose, mood-changing, mood-setting and atmospheric as this mm. kind of jazz. I instantly felt like I was in a different world and that it was soundtracking something much more cooler than I was doing walking up and down the hills of of an Irish park. But I could almost smell the streets, the wet, grimy, slimy streets and the kind of steam coming up from the from the subways through the through the grills it is one of yeah. the most transportative uh, genres yeah. i think and I, I was wondering i meant to ask you this is that because this is coming from somebody again whose knowledge of jazz is at best rudimentary but is it because we've spent so much time over the years with tv series and even like the likes of scorsese and taxi driver using jazz so effectively to set the scene and set the mood in in movie scenes and even detective shows, you know, but is that why I suppose it's so kind of evocative for people? Well, that that may very well be the case. The the opposite could also be the case that it's used a lot in movies because it is evocative. Yeah, you know, because yeah. there's something in the when you start tapping. You know, I, I've scored movies before, and it's not there are certain there are certain rules of structure that are, are pretty basic. There's certain modes that if you play that scale, it'll induce fear. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned Jaws earlier. That we know that those intervals create tension mm. and fear. It, it can, you know, so certain other modes will be will make you laugh. And guys who score uh, films and TV regularly understand this. These are, these are just the tools you work with. So because it's a little more harmonically complex, you, you're painting from maybe a, a, a broader palette of colors when you're playing jazz. So I, I think it goes hand in hand. Yeah, I'm sure you have been conditioned. No, I think I, think, I got no, conditioned you, you, by you, you, the, like, you know, the theme from the Honeymooners, Jackie Gleason. Oh, you might be too young. Yeah, I don't maybe know. It was, tattoo, it was a big yeah. TV show in the 50s. And it had this kind of it had this kind of jazzy thing to it. Mm-hmm. And it implied being in this the big city and all that and uh it's yeah, like Rhapsody, I, I think it's, I was similar to, to Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue you know that the minute mm-hmm. you hear the first opening like you're in yeah, New York yeah. and, you know yeah exactly uh, and I suppose just to go yeah. back to Wayne um I know he passed away earlier this year yeah and I want to pass on my condolences you were obviously uh you got to know him towards the end and you got you actually got to work with him when he came back to Blue Note on two albums mm-hmm. uh yeah. without a net and was yep. it Eminon, or am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, Eminon, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So right, yeah. how was that experience, considering the impact he had on you at such a vital age, that at the age of, what, 14 and 66, when you're listening mm-hmm. to Speak No Evil, how the circle has come that you're there in the studio with your hero? That must have been, that has happened to you quite a lot, actually. I will get to some it other experiences. Happened, yeah. In it, yeah. yeah, it never ceases to be, a, you never become inured to it, never ceases to blow my mind. Yeah. Uh, but Wayne was such a very special cat. He was... He had the the kind of innocent enthusiasm of like a little kid. You know, he, there's a lot of joy in his eyes and he took the delight in in so much. And he, you know, I learned so much hanging around with him, just how you approach life and how you approach music, which was he approached music fearlessly. The album without a net, that's what that's about. Yeah, just yeah. not being afraid to improvise and 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 to to totally mess something up because yeah. if it goes someplace that you didn't intend for it to go it's not necessarily a mistake you just re- rebalance yourself and, and start heading in that direction and that's advice you took 
yourself when you went and made the break uh, into the music business, you know, when you went to was it Mastermind Studios, having studied having studied a bit of, I think you've said this recently, you went to, well, I don't know if you go to college to learn sound, but you went anyway and they taught it all wrong. But it was enough for you to have gone through the, the rooms and the hallways of that and you came out the other side and you went to Mastermind Studios and you said, yeah, yeah, I've, I've gone to I've gone to college for this, so I'm I'm good to go. So it was just mm-hmm. getting you you taking that courageous and I suppose kind of f- flight into the unknown and just saying, "Look, I'm ready to go. Let's uh, let's take this on." That must have been that must have taken some courage, I would imagine. Uh, I, I guess I didn't really know it. When, when you're young, I'm, you're to be honest think. with you, I'm still working on it. I, I, I've been playing in a band with with Bobby Weir from the Grateful Dead yeah. for like the last five or six years, yeah. and one. Part of the allure of going to play with him was that the Grateful Dead were just like the most extreme jazz group. Man, they never play a song the same way twice. And they're known for stretching out. And uh, you have to be absolutely fearless in, in, in you know, listening to what everyone else is doing and then being committed to playing a note. Yeah. <laughs> That's going to change how everyone else is playing. And... Uh, uh, I wanted to do that gig for a number of reasons, not the least of which was that if I could if I could improve on my fearlessness in playing music, then I could apply that to everything in life. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of the allure of music for for listeners is that it's a little microcosm of life, yeah. you know, that that uh you know, just even when you hear a band playing, that's people getting along. That's an idealized family. Mm-hmm. That's an idealized work situation. It's like sports. In fact, when we were doing, uh, when I was producing a, an album with the Stones called A Bigger Bang in uh, 2004, we were- I've heard of them, France, yeah, I've heard, I've heard of them. House. Up and coming actually. I was, reading, I, I was reading a basketball book written by the coach of the LA Lakers, Phil Jackson, yes. who's also like a Zen Buddhist, very interesting yeah, figure in, in, the, uh, in the world of sports. And he he wrote a book called Sacred Hoops, and he was writing about the dynamics of within a five man basketball team. And I realized that the parallels to the Rolling Stones, which was a five man music team, were absolutely the same. That when everyone played together, when everyone listened to each other, when they were aware of each other, and when they passed the ball around a lot, basketball teams would win. And it's the same with with bands. When when you when you check your ego and you just play generously with other people, which the Rolling Stones do, yeah. uh, uh, you make great music, and it means something to people who are watching. People know that there's tension in the Rolling Stones. There's tension in every rock and roll band. They've been very public about theirs. And if you see them still get up on stage and hug each other and mm. make great music together. That's an example for you. Maybe you can make up with your estranged family members and friends. You know, if, if, if Rolling if Stones can, keep... can do this, why can't you? Your life will be better. Music becomes metaphorical for all of life. Yeah. And I believe that's why it impacts us so deeply. Um, we'll get to the Stones in a, in a very short while, but you tell an amazing okay. story, which, um, well, first of all, you, you saw them in 64. Yeah. Uh, as part of the fr- 200 people at imagine, the hockey arena in Detroit. Part of the first invasion. And you're obviously mm-hmm. having seen 
the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. So you got to see them in front of me with 300 people. And then mm. it's 1993. I'm racing ahead here, Don, because there's so much to get through. So I do apologize. But okay. it's 1993 okay. and you're sitting down. Mick and Keith are in front of you. And I want to try and I'll, I'll tell it much more. I'll let you tell the story. But it's how they were kind of interacting with you. And neither of them would give in by stopping talking. <laughs> and I just love, I think that is one of the best Stone stories. It's so incisive and kind of, it's such a great insight into their dynamic. And as you speak, I saw them in Croke Park here in Dublin a couple of years ago. To this day, yeah. one of the greatest yeah. gigs I've ever seen in my life. And I went in not expecting it to be. I just didn't know what to expect. And from the get-go, and the way they look at each other on stage, I've never seen a love and a chemistry mm. so strong yeah. and, and visible. And obviously yeah. you can hear but it, but you that, could, that I mean, I've gotten to play bass with them Imagine. a lot. And uh, God Almighty. when you hear the interplay, when you're actually a part of it, just mm. like, oh, I see, man, this is all that's quite jocular. Mm. They're having a lot of fun. And the conversation is so relaxed and they're throwing each other tidbits that they can you know charlie would play something on the hi-hat that keith would react to yeah. that mixed singing would react to and the, and they're just trading off and having f and they have fun playing it's 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 a thrill and it's really enjoyable to to play with the rolling stones you just said it. even to say that must be just having seen them from in 64 and then you're saying out your mouth the sentence just played with the Rolling Stones. I mean, this is just yeah. one of the many strands, amazing strands in your life. Listen, you know, we'll get through it. Was Not Was, um, hugely <laughs> successful act, more so over in the European side of things uh, when you signed with uh, the Zeddy Records. Um, mm -hmm. So you had, you're reaching some success here and then the production side of your life opened up with uh, your first act. Not a bad way to start, Don, was Carly Simon into Bonnie mm -hmm. Raitt. And then mm -hmm. it, all, it all kind of seemed to take off from there. And yeah. the range of acts, again, that you've worked with, you know, from Willie Nelson, Glenn Frey, you know, the ones we've mentioned already, the Rolling Stones, mm -hmm. Brian Wilson, Ringo Starr. Like, again, mm -hmm. it's it's almost a Forrest Gump, Zelig type, type uh, montage I have in my head. What is it, you know, we're going back to the jazz influences and I suppose your uh, origin story, you know, with jazz. Is there anything that you can the jazz sensibilities that you've learned from some of the acts like Wayne and Joe, or even listening to the Blue Note records of early days. Is there any of the, anything of that jazz sensibility that you can bring to any artist from any genre, be it country or folk or John Mayer or Ringo or, yep. or Mick and Keith? Well, I can, and it actually ties right in with the third record yeah, great choice. that we picked too. <laughs> and that, that is uh, Robert Glasper's Black Radio album which on my very first day on the job in New York at the Blue Note office, Robert came in to play the rough mixes for. Now, in the month preceding the, my first trip to the office, and when I knew I was going to start being president of Blue Note Records, I thought my, my first assignment was really to try to figure out why it was that records that were recorded for Blue Note 50, 60, even 70 years prior still were felt relevant today what was going on there and what i discovered was that in every era blue note records would sign artists who had 
totally learned the fundamentals. They didn't quit music school mm. yeah. <laughs> like I did. They, <laughs> they stayed in. They they learned and mastered the fundamentals okay. of what came before. But far from being a museum piece of of like the history of jazz, they took those fundamentals and related them to modern times and they pushed the music forward yeah. reflecting the times mm -hmm. that they lived in and in doing so the, the music always pushed the envelope so even 1948 if you listen to what Thelonious Monk recorded because he for was Blue Note it's, it's we, become standard issue it, now that Thelonious oh, Monk now is sorry it's become standard but back then it was completely out there and as you say for Blue Note to take him on was a testament to their ambition and their ethos. It was to kind of like, no, it's not good enough just to stand still. It's to kind of, let's push this forward. Let's get somebody who's just a little bit, is going to drag us forward. Exactly right. So when I heard Robert Glasper's rough mixes of black radio, I realized that this is a guy who, he, he you could hear him quote Thelonious Monk in, in his solos. You could hear him quote McDonald's commercials. You could hear him quote uh you know video game themes he was and you heard him be very influenced by hip-hop yep. as well as gospel music yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's who he is he grew up listening to hip-hop and jazz and gospel music and tv and playing video games so he's as real and honest about sharing what's inside of him as Monk was in 1948 or Art Blakey was in the 50s or as Herbie and Wayne were and Eric Dolphy and Ornette were in the 60s, right? And I realized that, okay, this is the thing, man. You gotta take what came before you and use it to create something brand new, mm -hmm. something that no one's heard before. Say it a different way, but it's still got to be honest and reflective of who you are. No posturing, no faking it, no acrobatics showing how many notes you can cram into a measure. No one cares about that. What they care about is feeling something, mm. be, be real and make people feel something it's that's an, it's that's an, the role it's of the artist it's an astonishing and, uh, an astonishing record uh don i'd never heard it before to my great shame and embarrassment but that has been well and truly fixed there's 12 tracks on it a lot of great uh, collaborations here with the likes of lupe fiasco erica badu is on here and then he finishes the mm -hmm. album with two two cover versions a bowie cover you know letter to mm -hmm. hermione and mm -hmm. then bringing it back yeah. to my story of, <laughs> That's right. uh, yeah, bringing it back to my life for one moment, if you don't mind. But like that cover version at the very end, uh, mm -hmm. track 12 of Black Radio of Smells Like Teen Spirit. It is like nothing. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, like any great artist, like Bowie himself uh, yeah. at, at his peak, where he was always at his peak, really. But there's always something alien-like to any great art, really, isn't there? It's like something that you can't really initially relate to or you've nothing, you've seen nothing like it before, but you get a sense yeah. of, I know what that... But this is what I heard when I heard his cover of Smells Like Teen Spirit. It is an absolutely astonishing, um, yeah. I don't know, breakdown, reconstruction of one of the most, I suppose, well-loved, well-known songs of, what, the early 90s and to this day. But I suppose that's the mark of the talent of the man for, again, anyone who hasn't heard it. Robert uh, Glasper from 2012, Black Radio. That is your third and yeah. final choice. But just to get into the Blue Note uh, era of your life before we go, um, mm -hmm. Founded in 1939, was it, were two German-Jewish immigrants who right. were very clear-cut, even back in those troubled times, that they came to New York with, uh, <laughs> which, as was the case with so many people those days, had a manifesto. 
Mm-hmm. And their manifesto was to, beside, you know, was to kind of, as you've just alluded to there, was to bring this music to bigger and newer and fresher and more unique places. That was their kind of ethos mm-hmm. from the get-go. Mm-hmm. That is something that has stood strong as a pillar of Blue Note. So mm-hmm. when you took over in 2011... You know, how how much did that weigh upon you, you know, looking back at the heritage and the history and the significance of Blue Note whilst maintaining that at the same time, moving it forward at the same time without wallowing or kind of focusing too much on the past? Was that balance something hard to establish from the early days? Yeah. Or it- well, I, I didn't see it as a conflict. It, was, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a burden to try to adhere to the manifesto, which really, really at, the, at the core of the manifesto is the pursuit of authentic music, music that comes from an authentic emotional place and doing it by giving the artists unlimited uh, and uncompromising artistic freedom. Those were the two real hallmarks of of the label. And that was, it's great guidance. You know, I I still have a picture of the two guys, Alfred Lyon and Francis Wolfe. It's hanging on the wall. And right below that is the, the picture of a man named Bruce Lundvall, who from 1980 for, for the next 30 years, right up until I, uh, you know, I was hired because he was he was old and ill, unfortunately, and couldn't keep going. Uh, but he ran the company beautifully for thirty years. And I think about what whether they you know whether they would approve of, of the moves we're making. And I and they, I try very hard to respect the legacy and understand the importance of uh, keeping it alive, keeping that music, the old music, available to people. We've done a best to learn everything we could about making vinyl. And I'm really proud of the vinyl that we release of the, mm-hmm. of the catalog albums. And I'm really proud of the roster that we have today, which has a lot of young guys who are doing the same things, but in a modern era, in a modern way that Wayne and Herbie were doing in the 60s. And Yeah, it's just, it's astonishing to think that a lot of those classic uh, Blue Note records, you'll correct me on this, uh, considering you're one of the greatest producers of all time, but they were recorded live on two tracks. Yep. On that's yep. just. There are no multi tracks until no, 1972. No, no pro so tools, nothing. Just the two. It, it just had to happen, and they mixed it as they were going, and it, it was what it was, and they're, they're perfect. And they're imagine, great, even even when they're flawed. You can hear sometimes that, that the saxophone player standing too far away at first, and the engineer had to go. Yeah, and yeah. Rudy Van Gelder is the guy who recorded most of these albums at a studio in New Jersey, and you can hear him you know, move the fader up because they're playing softer than he thought they were going to be playing. That's part of the charm of it. You know, it's real. Absolutely. Listen, Don, I've taken up way too much of your time already. I'm going to leave the last question to dear uh, Roger in Barcelona. Okay. Because (laughs) he really helped me out here, as, as did your kindness and generosity, I have to say. But Roger asks, and I'll ask on his behalf, what do you take most pride of um, in your association and work with Blue Note? Well, I'm I'm really proud of this new generation of artists who are making records. Of people still in their twenties. Uh, Joel Ross, great vibraphonist. Uh, Emmanuel Wilkins, sax player. Uh, Melissa Aldana, incredible tenor saxophone player. Mm. Uh, Deduzzo Macatini, pianist from South Africa. Julian Lage, brilliant guitarist. Yeah. So the flames still, sure. the, the flame still sure goes. I'm people, no, but, you're not. but, but I, I feel like we've now not just maintained the past and kept the, the music that's our legacy 
available and and in in you know and sounding good but we've now contributed because i i know that that people are going to be playing joel ross records 50 years from now and talking about it on a radio show like this somewhere you know that i know that these are artists who are going to be around for the long haul and i'm really proud of all of them you should be and your legacy is absolutely assured don was you know i want to thank you so much uh for, again for taking the time to share your quite astonishing recorded history and your equally astonishing Life and Times in Music. What is next? You're, you were saying, are you still touring at the moment in the trio? I'm on tour, yeah. yeah. I'm going on tour next week. I'm playing uh, I'm playing a few weeks with Ryan Adams and the Cardinals. Wow. Um, I'm playing bass with him and then uh, stopping in New York to produce uh, Naduto Makatini's next record for Blue Note. And then, uh, then I got some shows with Bob Weir. And you said before mm-hmm. you go to Bob Weir, the association with him and those gigs, the best thing you've ever done. I, I I love it. Every night is a whole new adventure. Never play the same show twice, okay. and I never you can't even repeat. You never play the same sequence of songs ever. You're not allowed to do that. The audience would be miffed if you did it. And we don't repeat a song for at least four or five nights. We got 150 songs. We play for three and a half hours every night, and we play them differently. The only thing that you can do wrong is try to. Play it the same way you played it last time, because everything else is going to be different. Okay, great. Well, hopefully we'll see you over here this side of the of the big drink. Don was it's been an absolute Look pleasure and, and a privilege, and thank you again for joining us with your recorded history. Thank you so much, man. Great to be here. What did I tell you? The great Don was. I mean, honestly, somebody needs to do an entire podcast series on that man—a giant of the game and an absolute gent to go with it now. If Don has inspired you to go buy one of his records that he's mentioned, or even just one you'd love yourself, then I'd absolutely love it if you supported our partners at therecordhub.com. We simply could not make this podcast without their loveliness. Next week's guest is the Archduke of France Ferdinand himself, the very lovely Mr. Alex Capranos. I've been Ed Smith. This has been Recorded History. You've come this far, so if you wouldn't mind just hitting the old follow and subscribe shenanigans there on your way out, I'd be mighty grateful. And don't forget, above all, subscribe to yourself. You smell absolutely amazing. Good luck. Go Loud presents Recorded History. Hosted, produced and researched by me, Ed Smith, at Go Loud Studios. The show was created and executive produced for Go Loud by D-Ready. Our series is proudly supported by TheRecordHub.com, your local Irish and online record store.